Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Sea Gold by John Blaine. Volume 7, Chapter 15, Shadows in the Night. If Scotty had guessed what happened to Rick, he would have been frantic. As it was, he was being pushed to the near edge of erupting like a dark-haired volcano. The reason was Cooner's peculiar actions. Scotty had followed the dragger, keeping at a safe distance until darkness began to close down. Then he had followed the white light to the stern of Cooner's boat. He couldn't be sure how far they had come. He knew only they had passed no towns. By the scent of the air, they were close by extensive saltwater marshes. Cooner alternately throttled down, then sped up again, but at his fastest he never exceeded five knots. Scotty figured he was deliberately killing time so he wouldn't get to some mysterious rendezvous too soon. He glanced at his watch. It was almost nine. He shook it to see if it was still running. Surely more time than that had passed. Up ahead, the lights of Cooner's boat moved lazily. Scotty tried to relax, but there was too much tension in him. If only he could be certain that the water trail would lead to Rick. He had a hunch that Rick desperately needed him. He might even have phoned at the plant to call for aid. Suddenly, Scotty straightened, eyes trying to pierce the darkness ahead. Cooner was swinging into shore. Scotty killed his engine and drifted, listening. He heard the coughing sound of the dragger's exhaust and saw the lights move toward the dark bulk of shore. He thought he could make out some kind of building, but he wasn't sure. He'd been hugging the shore pretty well. Now the incoming tide and the swell pushed the motorboat toward the tree-shrouded bank. Well, that was good. He needn't risk starting the engine again. In a short while, the craft grounded gently and he leapt ashore carrying a rope. He snubbed it around a tree root that jutted toward the water and secured it. Then he began to make his way through the dark underbrush toward the place where Cooner had pulled in. Scotty was at home in the woods, even in the darkness. He moved swiftly and silently, and presently came to the edge of a clearing. There was a building there, an abandoned barn from the look of it. A small pier jutted into the water. Cooner was tying up to it. After a moment, he switched off the dragger's lights, and there was only the glow of a pipe. The waiting was hard. Scotty chafed with impatience, but he didn't move. He lay at full length, screened by underbrush. Mosquitoes settled on his exposed ankles and had a banquet. He made no move toward them. He was taking no chances of giving away his presence. After what couldn't have been more than five minutes, but seemed like an eternity, he heard a car engine. In a moment, headlamps cut a swath through the woods, and the car rolled into the clearing, pulled up to the dock, and stopped. The engine died, and the lights went out. Scotty could only see dimly. Objects appeared to be shadows rather than substance. He heard the car doors open and heard subdued voices. Two men got out of the car and reached in and dragged something out. A third person. Scotty saw them half carry, half drag the limp figure, toward Cooner's boat. Fear took his heart and twisted it. Who was it that they carried? Chapter 16 Swim or Die Rick was smothering, the weight of a ton of wool pushing him down. A sudden bump jolted his teeth together. He struggled to rise and a harsh voice warned him, Stay put! or you'll get slugged again. A foot pushed at him. 
The voice and foot belonged to Tony Larzo. Things began to make some kind of sense now. He was on the floor of a car. He could feel the harsh floor rug and the footrest. Yes, he was in the back seat, and there was a blanket over him. He pushed the blanket aside, and cool air swept into his parched lungs. His head ached unbearably. He put up an exploring hand and found a lump the size of an egg. No, there were two lumps. One above his forehead, the other behind his ear. He looked up at the window and saw that it was dark. The bumping continued rhythmically, each stroke curling in his tortured head like a whiplash. After a while, he identified it. Those were the tar expansion joints in the concrete highway. Tony spoke from above him. He's coming too. Shall I sap him again? Manfred Wessel's hated voice answered from the front seat. No need. We'll be turning off the parkway in a minute. Let him yell if he wants to. No one will hear him. They were on the Merritt Parkway then and about to turn off. Much time had passed that he couldn't account for. He had a dim recollection of trying to sit up, and then something hit him. He pieced together the bits of broken memory, and they added up all right. Tony had knocked him out back in the garage. Then they had put him in the sedan, perhaps immediately, perhaps not until later, because that must have been almost four hours ago. And after a while, they had headed for Connecticut. He had probably come to life sometime during the trip, and Tony had slugged him again. Rick's analysis was all right, so far as it went. What he could not know was that Wessel had tried to force a dose of chloral hydrate knockout drops into him at the garage. He had swallowed some, but not enough to keep him drugged for the entire trip. He had shown signs of returning consciousness at a gasoline station while Wessel was telephoning Cooner, and Tony had hit him again. He lay quietly, gathering his strength. A break might come, and he wanted to be ready for it. The sedan turned sharply, piling him into a corner. Tony cursed and kicked at him. The bumping of the expansion joints gave way to the smooth hum of tarvia or macadam surfacing. Rick let his mind float off into misty darkness and let his body relax. His time wasn't there yet. He needed all the strength he could muster. After a while, the sedan made another sharp turn, and the joggling ride told Rick they were on a back road, probably dirt. Then it seemed to grow worse. His chance might come on this road if they slowed enough. Little by little, he began to gather his legs under him. The sedan slowed. Rick looked up past Tony's head and saw the dark outlines of trees silhouetted against the lighter darkness of the sky. The sedan slowed even more and crept over some obstacle on the road. Rick tensed. Now, now, before they gathered speed again. Soundlessly, with all the drive in his legs, he threw himself upward and forward, reaching for the door handle. He gained it. The door swung open. Something descended with stunning force on his head, and the strength flowed out of him. Hands reached out and dragged him back. He fought to keep from losing consciousness and partially succeeded. But his body refused to obey. He was paralyzed temporarily unable to move as much as a finger. Dimly, he heard the car door slam and voices talking. He didn't know what they said. He didn't care. The sedan moved ahead, and presently it swung in a half-circle and stopped. Tony got out, stumbling over him. 
Wessel got out too. They reached in and dragged him out and carried him across rattling boards, his legs dragging. They carried him in through an open door into light that blinded him, and they put him in a chair. He sat upright, his head lolling, and he felt ropes being passed around his arms and around his legs. Cold water smashed into his face. He shuddered and the haze cleared. After a moment, he looked up into three faces. When had Cooner come? He couldn't remember. Well, Brunt, Wessel said harshly. Rick looked up at Wessel and tried to make his face expressionless. There's no one within miles of here. You can yell as much as you want, and you will too, before we're through with you, unless you make things easy on yourself and tell me what you did with that envelope. Rick set his jaw stubbornly and met the renegade scientist's eyes unflinchingly. Even when Tony slapped him, he didn't take his eyes away. Cooter winced. Stop that! Shut up! Listen! I know how to make this bird talk! Tony grated. Go ahead, Wessel said. Tony reached into his pocket and came out with a jackknife. He pressed a spring and a gleaming blade snapped forth. Rick saw the cabin light reflected from it, and a deep shudder racked him. Talk, or I'll cut my initials on your face, threatened Tony. The blade was a magnet, drawing his eyes. He saw a tiny nick on the point, almost microscopic in size. He swallowed hard. The blade came closer. It was only inches from his face. The blade touched his forehead, pressed. And then a form hurtled through the door and grabbed Tony's arm. Incredulously, Rick saw that it was Scotty. He saw him lift and twist, heard Tony scream, saw the knife go flying, and heard the sickening crack of Tony's arm as it broke. Wessel leapt onto Scotty's back and miraculously continued right over the boy's head to land with a stunning crash against a bulkhead. Rick saw Cooner step in, and he opened his mouth to shout a warning, but he was too late. Cooner swung a huge lead sinker held in his hand. Scotty sank to the deck. In brief seconds, hope had flared and died. Now Scotty would have to take Wessel's vengeance as well. Hopelessly, Rick saw Tony rise and launch a vicious kick at the unconscious boy's ribs. The dark foreman was clutching a wrist that dangled at an odd angle. Wessel got to his feet, eyes venomous. Cooner looked ready to cry. Where did you come from? Wessel demanded. He must have followed you, you fool. His open hand rocked Cooner's head back. Tie him up. Cooner obeyed like a man in a dream. In a moment, Scotty was tightly trussed up. Already he was stirring and a groan escaped his lips. He must have a boat nearby. Scatter and find it. All of us. If he followed you, perhaps others did too. We've got to get out of here. They hurried out to the dock, leaving the boys alone. Scotty! Scotty! Rick called. Huh? Scotty managed to sit up, resting against the bulkhead, his hands tied behind him. My head? Who hit me? Cooner, Scotty. You shouldn't have come. Yes, I should. Only I should have brought a shotgun. Rick, tell me, what they won't know? What is it anyway? Rick explained rapidly about the envelope, and Scotty whistled eyes wide. Whistle! Rick saw realization dawn on his friend's face. They didn't have a chance. 
Well, what did you do with it? Scotty asked quietly. I mailed it to myself. Rick heard a faint scrape from outside the cabin door and knew somebody was listening. At general delivery in Bridgeport, he finished quickly. Thank you. I rather thought you would confide in your friend, Whistle said from the doorway. Now that we know, the rest is simple. Tony will become Mr. Rick Brandt for purposes of retrieving the envelope. I will see he is provided with suitable identification. He went through Rick's pockets rapidly and came up with his wallet. I am sure something in here will do nicely. Scotty spoke from the floor. That plastic surgeon didn't do such a hot job, did he? Changed you from a gargoyle into a monster. Wessel's eyes flamed, but he merely chuckled. And you, my young friend, will soon be changed into fish bait. Tony and Cooner appeared. Boats around the point, Tony said. We can pick it up. Now how about fixing this arm? Cooner applied a rude splint, then went out to cast off and kick the engine into action, and the boat shuddered. Rick's glance was anguished as he looked at Scotty. Fish bait. The draggers circled around, and there was a pause while Cooner went out and secured the motorboat to the stern with a length of line. Then he pointed the nose straight into the sound. We have quite a ride, Wessel said conversationally. Are you familiar with Long Island Sound at this particular place? No? Well, then let me inform you. It is about 16 miles wide, and we must find the exact middle. Can you imagine why? There were fine beads of sweat on Scotty's face. Rick's throat had dried up, and he could feel the pulse in his temples. I know you are good swimmers, but you're not good enough to swim eight miles. I think not. No, whispered Cooner. We can't do that. And why not, my fat friend? It's murder. Tony lunged forward. Yeah, and you're in on a cooner up to your fat neck. If we hang for it, you hang right with us. This'll shut your mouth, you weak sister. You won't dare talk now. Cooner lapsed into silence, mouth working. Spindrift, Rick thought. We'll never see... He started talking, intent on keeping his mind from what was ahead. What do you get out of this, Wessel? What's that job your friend is going to give you? Ah, you overheard, huh? Well, that gentleman is going to own the sea mine processes within a week. He'll operate them on a scale your two foolish employers never dreamed of. And I will head the research laboratories. I will come into my own as I would have once before if you two had not interfered. He laughed. You won't interfere again. You're supposed to be dead, Scotty said. Yes, and very inconvenient too. To satisfy your curiosity, I would explain. When I jumped from the cliff, it was not for suicidal purposes. There was considerable risk, I admit, but I am a powerful swimmer. You were so sure I had perished that your search was not very thorough. I hid behind a boulder, and when it was dark, I made my way to the mainland. The gentleman Brant saw with me came to my assistance. I had known him before. In fact, I did some work for him along the line of cartels while I was in Europe. He arranged for a plastic surgeon to make me over. Not a very good job, I fear, but sufficient to hide my identity. You were afraid we would recognize you. 
That's why you locked us up in the fractionator with Tony's help. Precisely, of course I had an added incentive. I derived a great deal of pleasure from imagining your terrors when you found you could not get out. I was quite disappointed. He stopped smiling suddenly. Enough of this. I'm sure you will enjoy the ride more if we give you an opportunity to meditate on your past sins. There will be no future ones, I assure you. I cannot afford to let you tell people I am alive. He turned abruptly and went on deck. Tony followed. Cooter was holding the wheel, staring straight ahead. Listen, Rick whispered. You don't need to get mixed up in this, Cooner. I don't want to, Cooter mumbled. But I got to. They'll kill me. You see how they are. Tony thrust his head through the door. No more talk, or three of you will be sharp-baked. You got that, Cooter. Silence settled in in the cabin, except for the throb of the engine. Rick tested his bonds and found them tight. He saw Scotty squirm and then relax, and knew his friend was tightly tied too. His vivid imagination raced ahead. He bit his lip and tried not to think. The pounding of the engine jarred at his thoughts. Each turn of the screw, each beat of the exhaust. The remaining time was measured by the engine. He closed his eyes. Not a chance. Not a single chance. If only Scotty hadn't come. The dragger lifted to the swells and the engine beat out its rhythmic tempo. Water underneath and eight miles to shore. How far straight down? The steady pound of the exhaust measured the miles and the minutes. Rick opened his eyes and saw Scotty watching him. Scotty grinned and a lump came into Rick's throat. It wasn't much of a grin. It was strained and it was feeble, but it was nonetheless a grin. He returned it and his face felt stiff when he smiled. Then the beat of the engine intruded again, hammering against his mind, forcing him to think ahead. Eight miles. Eight terrible miles. And he was weak from the beating he had taken. Eight, the exhaust said. Eight, 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 eight. Wessel's voice was loud. All right, Kuna, shut it off. The engine beat died, and the silence was even worse. Tony produced a gun with his good hand. I'd like an excuse. In the stomach. It hurts in the stomach. Don't try to fight, Scotty said sharply, and Rick stared. Not fight? Go out without a struggle? Be better to get shot. Scotty saw his expression and said firmly, Don't fight. He nodded. Cooner cut his bonds and helped him to his feet. Rick swayed unsteadily. Cooner lifted Scotty to his feet and cut him loose. Tony's gun wavered between them with dreadful impartiality. Out on the deck, Wessel ordered. Rick stumbled on the step and almost fell. He got out on the deck and leaned against the cabin wall. Scotty followed him. Better hitch a few hunks of scrap iron to him, Tony said harshly. No, that wouldn't do. The draggers and trawlers have a way of clearing the bottom too thoroughly. They might be found too soon, Wessel objected. Well, at least let me knock them on the head, Tony growled. No, Tony, if they are washed ashore, we want the autopsy to show death by drowning. It was a dream, 
It was a nightmare. Even official hangman never talked in this calm a tone of voice. When he hit the water, he would wake up. He would find himself safe in bed at Spindrift. He clung to the thought. Open the seacocks on their boat, Kuna. Kuna moved to obey. There was a gurgling from the motorboat. Kuna untied it. In an incredibly short time, it filled. Then there were only bubbles. Who is first? Wessel asked. Mr. Scott? Marines volunteer for anything, correct? Sure. Scotty said amiably. In a moment, Rick thought, I'll wake up. When I hit the water, I'm going to wake up. Scotty disappeared in a froth of bubbles. Rick walked like a sleepwalker to the side of the dragger. Now, now he'd wake up, now. Cold water engulfed him, filled his mouth and nose. He sank, and the chill of the water penetrated, and his head cleared, and he knew he wasn't dreaming. A hand grabbed his collar and pulled him up. Swim, Scotty commanded. Tread water. Yes, a voice from above them sounded. It mingled with the sudden bark of the engine. Yes, my young friends, swim or die. Chapter 17 An Angel and a Lobster Smack The dragger gathered speed, its bow lifting. Rick watched it go hungrily and hopelessly. He was treading water automatically, his eyes fixed on the stern light. It dwindled and became a distant star and then finally winked out. They were alone now, eight miles from shore. Scotty's voice cut it to his despair. Okay, get out of your pants and drop your shoes. What? Come on, we're not giving up yet. Why do you think I told you not to struggle on the boat? We have an ace up our sleeves, old son but we needed all our strength. Now get out of those pants, quick. He couldn't imagine what Scotty meant, but he knew that tone of voice. He lifted his legs, letting himself sink as he fumbled with his shoelaces. The knots came undone with a little tugging, and the shoes drifted silently downward. Then Rick unbuckled his belt and slipped out of his trousers, holding them and awaiting further instructions. Now tie a knot in each leg. It was hard work managing the wet cloth, but he finally succeeded. Now, watch me. Scotty held his own trousers by the tops and whipped them through the air over his head. They caught the air and ballooned out slightly. Then he thrust the top down under the water. The air-filled legs thrust up like two oversized sausages. Rick got the idea immediately. He tried it and after a moment got the knack of inflating the wet trousers. Then holding the open top downward with both hands, he rested between the inflated legs, and they acted just like water wings. The cloth is too porous to hold air for very long, Scotty said. We'll have to keep doing it. They taught us to do this in the service. I knew a sailor once who kept afloat this way for 30 hours before he was picked up. But, no buts, we'll make it. Just keep moving a little so your arms and legs don't get numb. And no more talking. We'll need our breath. This is going to be hard work. Some of Scotty's hopefulness caught him. They weren't done yet. Scotty paddled close. From his shirt pocket, he took a small scrap of paper. Watch this. He cast it adrift. It sank almost at once, but not before they saw it drifting away from them. The current is moving toward Long Island. It's about high tide now, and the tide will be running out soon, too. 
All we have to do is stay afloat and we'll end up on Long Island. They fell silent. The faint luminous swells lifted them and dropped them. Now and then one of them whipped his trousers through the air to refill them. The water brought a kind of spreading numbness so that after a while Rick wasn't even conscious of his body. To inflate the trousers was automatic. His mind seemed insulated from the sea in the darkness. He didn't even notice the crescent moon that floated up out of the farther dark. Rick! Rick! He came out of the half days into which his mind had drifted. What? You all right? Yeah, you? I'm okay. I didn't see you moving. How much time had passed? How far had they floated? He was tiring fast. It was a painful effort now to lift the trousers above the water to inflate them. He couldn't last much longer. A time would come when his aching arms would refuse to lift, and the last air would seep from the tied trouser legs, and he would struggle just a little before sinking. And how far down was it? It didn't really matter. Six feet or six hundred was all the same. The numbness flowed over him, and he pinched his arm hard. There was only a faint response of pain. He tried to slap himself in the face, but that only dashed water into his eyes. A sodden mass floated by him, and in the dim light he saw a white face. That was strange. So strange. Was there someone else around? A faint message from his memory stirred his senses, and suddenly he yelled, Scotty! Wake up, Scotty! He found the power to move, to kick, and push himself toward the other boy. Huh? What'd you say? Scotty! He reached him and slapped him hard. His palm didn't even tingle, but Scotty shook his head and straightened up. Thanks, he said simply. Thanks, Rick. Scotty was the stronger of the two, and Scotty was so tired he had drifted off. Utter hopelessness gripped Rick. There was no chance here, none at all. Why prolong the agony? It would be just so easy to let go. They would drift down, moving gently in the current, and they would sleep deeply without dreams. Rick struggled with the temptation to let go of his trousers, and he won. He kicked feebly and reinflated the trousers. Wessel hadn't won yet. How long had it been? He made himself think. Time is important, but time is relative. During vacation, days turn into hours, weeks into days, months into weeks. There weren't really three months in a vacation, but only three weeks, because you enjoyed yourself. But here in the dark sea, a second became a minute, a minute an hour, and an hour an eternity. They'd been floating here for about ten eternities. The minutes that seemed to be hours blended and were one with the unceasing lapping of the water. He tried watching the moon. He had just discovered it. Moonrise wasn't until almost one o'clock, was it? Had so much time passed? When he watched, it floated in the sea of darkness and didn't advance. But when he looked away and made himself think, and then looked back again, it had sneaked upward toward the zenith. It became a game. He tried to outwit the moon, to look away then look up before it had a chance to move. It was angry because he was winning. He knew the moon was angry because it had turned pale. He laughed and chose the wrong moment to laugh. He gulped salt water and choked. The choking brought him back to full consciousness and he called. Scotty! Scotty! I'm okay, Rick. What is it? 
dawn. It's almost dawn. That's why the moon had grown pale. Who's there? It's me, you dope. What's the matter with you, Scotty? Scotty's voice sounded strange. I didn't say anything. The sense of that penetrated, and then they were both yelling. A voice hailed them, and an angel appeared. An angel in a tattered sweater and a disreputable hat, and his chariot was a lobster smack. The angel extended a golden wand, or perhaps it was only a boat hook. Grab a holt, he said in a very prosaic voice. We'll have ye out of here in two shakes. Chapter 18 Setting the Trap And that was about all there is to it, Rick said. The lobster man, his name was Jake Bray, took us to his house. Mrs. Bray made us eat breakfast, then I called you. Then she insisted that we go to bed, and we slept from six until about eight this evening. Mr. Bray went out and bought sneakers for us, Scotty added, because we dropped our shoes in the water. Then when we woke up, he drove us into Port Jefferson. We caught a ferry to Bridgeport, took a bus, and here we are. Tom Blakely and Doug Chambers looked at each other and shook their heads, then looked at the boys again. If you'd lend me a few choice hairs off that rabbit's foot you carry, I'd appreciate it, Tom said. I could use a couple, too, Doug added grimly. I've never heard of such incredible luck in my entire life. We were lucky, all right, Rick admitted. But Scotty, knowing how to make water wings out of pants, helped plenty, too. Now suppose you bring us up to date. Well, Tom called the police right after you phoned, Doug said. They sent out an alarm for Wessel, Tony, and Cooner, but they've had no success so far. They promised to let us know. I'll feel better when Wessel is safely in the clink, Scotty remarked. We've had trouble enough from that bird. I hope he gets a hundred years at hard labor. How old a man is Wessel? Tom asked. I don't know exactly, Rick replied. Not very old, anyway. Maybe 40. He's in good shape, believe me. The way he kept up with me in New York scared me silly. Remember how he got away from us and jumped off that clip at Spindrift? He's a pretty good athlete, Scotty reminded him. There was an interruption as one of the guards knocked at the door. The guards were ex-policemen who looked capable of dealing with anything that came up. They were armed on their toes. A guy out here wants to come in, the guard said. Says his name is Curtis. We've been expecting him. Let him in. Rick looked toward the door curiously. Curtis? The name wasn't familiar. The door opened, and Mike Kozak came in. Mike! Scotty jumped to his feet. Where did you go? Rick had heard of Mike's disappearance. He chimed in. Yeah, and since when is your name Curtis? Mike grinned. It's all my life. Once a Curtis, always a Curtis. The boys stared. Mike's accent had vanished. He looked completely different, too, in a well-tailored tweed suit and soft hat. Tom took the floor, grinning widely. You two aren't the only one with surprises. Boys, meet Mr. Michael Curtis, head of Curtis Investigations. Best detective agency in New York, Mike added with a smile. Well, I'll be beat, Scotty exclaimed, and Rick echoed him. Mike phoned this morning, Doug explained. He was hired by my Uncle Frank to investigate the trouble we've been having, and unknown to us, he's been on the job for two weeks. Mike took a chair and straddled it. That's right. I told uh, Doug and Tom some of the story, but I suppose I'd better start at the beginning. 
Yeah, Rick agreed. We want to know all of it. Okay, Mike said. Well, it starts when Mr. Chambers hired me. Doug thought his uncle had invested only 10000 in the plant because he was stingy. I guess, but that wasn't the only reason. Mr. Chambers just didn't want to make things too easy. He believes that young men should work for what they get. Anyway, when he heard of the trouble they'd had, he got worried and hired me to check up. I started by coming to Crayville as Mike Kozak. Mike had discovered at once that Cooner was stirring up the fishermen and had kept an eye on the fat man until he made contact with Fred Lewis, or Wessel. Then the detective had dropped Cooner and trailed the white-faced man for a full week, hoping that Wessel would lead him to the big boss. Mike had discovered that Wessel always parked his car at the same garage on 8th Avenue, but the trail had never led to anyone higher up. Instead, it had led back to Crayville and to Tony Larzo. The detective had debated telling the partners that Tony was mixed up in a plot against them and decided against it, on the grounds that it was easier to keep track of a known accomplice. Had they fired Tony, the plotters would have been warned that they were under suspicion and would have covered their tracks better. On a Sunday, Mike had gone to Zookie's to try to find out how far Cooner's agitation among the fishermen had progressed. The boys had seen him there. What Mike had learned worried him, and he decided to get a job at the sea mine plant in order to keep a closer watch on Tony and to be on hand if the fishermen started anything. The recruiting of workmen at Bridgeport had given him his chance. One of his operators had told him about the employment agency that wanted men for the plant. The same operator had driven Mike's car into Crayville on the morning the detective showed up as a workman and had left it parked in an alley at the edge of town. The rest was known to the partners and the boys up to the time of the explosions. Mike, like Rick, had seen the two men in the field. He had seen Wessel leave in his car and Rick run for the cub. And like Rick, Mike had chosen to follow Wessel. I ran and got to my car. I saw the cub go by and I knew Rick was chasing Wessel. I didn't think he could stay with him. I was sure he was headed for New York, maybe to report to his boss. Instead of trying to chase Wessel down the parkway and perhaps have him find out he was being followed, I cut across the truck road to Bridgeport, breaking every speed law ever invented. I knew there was a train at 1233 that would beat Wessel into New York. Well, I made it, but only by luck. I was five minutes late. I got to New York and took a taxi to the garage where I figured Wessel was heading and waited on the corner. Sure enough, he showed up. And who should come pussyfooting behind him but our friend Brant? But I didn't see you, Rick exclaimed. Mike grinned. You weren't supposed to, because if he found out you were trailing him and shook you off, I'd still be with him. But you stayed with him. Nice going, too. You can have a job at my agency anytime you want. Mike had followed Rick and Wessel to the restaurant, but had remained outside. He saw Wessel go into the booth with his friend and saw Rick follow. In a few moments, Rick came running out with Wessel behind him. I thought you'd shake him with no trouble, Mike explained, or I would have given you a hand. But I figured seeing him with his friend was a big break, so I let you and Wessel go and I followed his pal. Rick couldn't sit still now. He's the big boss, Mike. Who is he? Where did he go? Easy there, big fella, Mike grinned. You'll get high blood pressure. He led me to an office in the RCA building. I got chummy with his receptionist and got some good leads. I spent today tracking them down, and now I finally got the full story. All of them were leaning forward now, their full attention on Mike. Our friend is Mr. J. Arthur Brink, president of Amalgamated Mines. 
and today I found out he's also the principal stockholder of the Carstairs Company. The pieces of the puzzle clicked into place. Brink had learned about Doug's processes when the young engineer first approached Amalgamated. Then, when the partners refused to sell out, Brink had gone after them in his own way. He had used Wessel, Tony, and Cooner to slow down the plant construction and to sabotage the work. Meanwhile, he had given orders to Carstairs, the plant's biggest creditor. Now, with the bombing of the tanks as the final straw, Carstairs would simply demand payment of their note, and since the partners couldn't meet payment, the plant would be forced into bankruptcy. Then Carstairs, as their principal creditor, would simply pay off the other creditors and take over the plant and the processes. It was so simple, yet so foolproof, that Rick was staggered. But then he'll get the plant, and we can't do anything about it, Rick groaned. No, he won't get the plant. Mr. Chambers has offered to help with enough money to cover the Carstairs note, said Mike. Rick and Scotty were about to let out exultant yells, but Mike's next words stopped them. He doesn't get the plant, but we don't get him either. All his business deals have been legitimate, and will never prove that he was even tied in with Wessel and the others. Seeing him with Wessel means nothing. Wessel and Tony won't talk, and Cooner wouldn't dare. He knows what happens to squealers, even in jail. The boys and the partners fell silent as the truth of Mike's words became evident. They didn't have a thing on Brink. Rick remembered the confident, smug face of the businessman as he teased Wessel about the envelope. He remembered how Brink had smiled as he opened the envelope and glanced through the pictures. Fingerprints! He finally exploded. Fingerprints on the pictures! Listen, we do have him! His fingerprints are all over those pictures of Wessel! Golly, yeah! Scotty shouted. That'll prove he knew who Wessel was, and it's a crime to aid a fugitive from justice. Not only that, we can get the others. They'll try to pick up the envelope at Bridgeport. They probably tried already, but figured the mail was slow. Mike Curtis looked dazed. What envelope? he asked. What's this all about? The boys had forgotten he didn't know Rick's full story. When they had explained, the detective jumped up. You're right. We've got them all cold. Listen, we'll report this to the police. First thing in the morning, we'll pick up the envelope at Milford where Rick actually mailed it. We'll take a fingerprint expert with us. Brink did some work for the government at one time, so the FBI will have his fingerprints on file. We'll go to Bridgeport and help the police set up a trap for Wessel and the others. Wessel wouldn't dare not try to get that envelope, and he thinks you two are dead. Won't he be surprised? Rick exclaimed exultantly. He'll be surprised, brother, Scotty chuckled, slapping Rick on the back, but he won't be pleased. Chapter 19. The Trap Closes Rick was fidgety. He shifted from one foot to the other and wondered how much longer they would have to wait. He wondered, too, at Scotty's patience. His friend was leaning calmly against a pillar, reading post office literature. The boys were in a dim corner of the post office, close to the side door. They had a good view of the front door through which Wessel and Tony and perhaps Cooner would probably come. Near the front door, Mike Curtis chatted with a husky, plain-clothes man of the Bridgeport Police Force. Mike was dressed in a business suit, and he had a felt hat pulled low over his forehead. Anyone would have to look twice to see any resemblance to the workman, Mike Kozak. At the other side door, two more plain-clothes officers waited. 
with instructions to bar the door if Mike signaled that the fugitives were inside. Rick glanced at his watch. It was nearing 10 o'clock, and they'd been waiting since the general delivery window opened at 8. In the preceding hour, they had gone to Milford, accompanied by two state police officers. The postmaster had opened up early at their request and delivered the envelope. The police officers had taken it unopened. By now, they must have classified all the fingerprints on it and teletyped their descriptions to Washington. Take it easy, boy, Scotty said. You're as nervous as a bee in a birdcage. I wish something would happen, Rick complained. I'm getting hungry. A man next to them said, You get used to it. Here, have an apple. I always bring a couple along. Rick stared. Another detective? How many of you are there? Eight. We're taking no chances. The outside of the building is covered, too. Rick wondered where Tom and Doug had gone and decided they had probably been posted outside to help the outside police identify the wanted men. He yawned and leaned against a post. Scotty dug an elbow into his ribs. He looked up a little irritably. Those are my ribs you're breaking, friend. Then the irritation died because Scotty was looking at two men who had just come in through the side door. The sunlight through the window was in Rick's eyes, so he ducked back for a better look, and his breath stopped. The men were Wessel and Tony Larzo. He raised his arm in the agreed-upon signal to Mike, and at that moment Tony glanced around and looked straight into his eyes. For a shocked instant, Tony stared and then grabbed Wessel and shouted, Scram! The detective next to the boys leapt forward with a shout, but Tony's foot lifted in a vicious arc and caught the officer in the stomach. Then the two fugitives turned and ran for the side door. Get him! Scotty shouted, and the two boys sprinted after them. The officers outside had to be warned. Rick raised his voice in a yell of warning and bolted through the swinging doors. He caught a glimpse of men running toward him down the sidewalk, and then he let out another yell. Cooner Stoles was waiting at the curb in a car, and Wessel and Tony were just opening the door. Rick made a wild leap, but Scotty was there before him. Tony whirled. A blackjack lifted. Scotty caught his wrist and twisted. Rick danced around, looking for an opening. Wessel was pushed against the door by Tony and Scotty, and he was struggling to get free. Tony's other arm lifted, and Rick saw that it was in a plaster cast. The cast descended on Scotty's head. Scotty fell back for a moment, then his foot shot out and kicked Tony's legs out from under him. Wessel, freed, started around the front of the car, but Rick was after him. He charged headlong, and his shoulder caught the fleeing criminal right behind the knees. It would have brought a penalty for clipping on a football field, but here it brought quick victory. Wessel slammed into the cement sidewalk face first. He didn't even have time to break his fall. Then, as ready hands lifted Rick to his feet, a police cruiser shot across in front of the getaway car, effectively blocking Cooner's retreat. Tony, who was sprawled against the car, was being dragged to his feet by two officers. Scotty was nursing his knuckles. Mike Curtis arrived, and Rick saw Tom and Doug spring down the sidewalk from the other side of the post office. Great going, Mike said. All three of them at once. Is anybody hurt? I saw the dark guy clip Joe with his foot, an officer said. But I guess he just knocked him down. Everybody else is okay, I guess. Rick walked over as a husky detective pulled Cooner out of the car by his coat collar. Well, Rick said, if it isn't our fat friend. Surprised to see us, Cooner? He was surprised by the man's reaction. Cooner straightened up and met his gaze levelly. You'll never believe this, he said. 
but I'm glad it's over, and I'm glad you boys didn't drown. I was afraid I'd never get a good night's sleep again. Scotty joined Rick. This life of crime is sure hard on our friend Wessel's face, he grinned. When you clipped him, he landed nose first. He's going to need another plastic surgery job. How about Tony? Rick returned with a smile. They're going to have to feed him with a spoon, Mike Curtis said from behind. Scotty plays rough. It was his own fault. He tried to jerk away. I had him in a jujitsu wrist lock. Doesn't matter whose fault it is, Mike returned. He now has two broken wrists. So I guess you boys are even. The siren put an end to the conversation. The boys watched as the three prisoners were herded into the police wagon. The last thing Rick saw as it drove away was Manfred Wessel. The ex-scientist was holding a blood-soaked handkerchief to his crushed nose, and from above it, two dark, venomous eyes glared at the boys. Later, as the boys and the partners rode back to Crayville in Mike's car, the detective asked them to repeat their story, being careful not to leave anything out, even scraps of conversation. As they drew up to the plant gate, Mike nodded. Sorry to make you go over all this again, but I wondered if there might not be something we've overlooked. Are you sure of Wessel's words about his dealings with Brink? He said, I did some work for him along the lines of cartels in Europe, Rick repeated. I'm sure that's exactly what he said. That's how I remember it too, Scotty said. Good. Isn't much chance, but at least we can ask the Department of Justice to start an investigation into Brink's foreign tie-ups. We may get him on something big yet. Tom spoke up from the back seat. When do we find out about the fingerprints? Sometime today, I hope, Mike said. It was three that afternoon when the phone rang. The state police wanted to talk with Mike. The private detective took the phone and listened while the officer reported. When he hung up, he was grinning. Well, there were three sets of fingerprints, he reported. Two were identified as Rick's and Wessel's. They had Rick's from his license application. They had Wessel's from a passport application. And the third set, Rick prompted. Come on, Mike. Third set belonged to Mr. Jeremy Arthur Brink. They were nice, clear prints. And now the police want to ask Mr. Brink some pointed questions about harboring a known criminal. Chapter 20 Success. The door to the process vault stood open, revealing great banks of electronic tubes. Some of them glowed like radio tubes, but some were a bright pulsating blue like mercury vapor lamps. There was a hum also, like that of a million bees. Hartson Brandt was inspecting everything with scientific interest, but Mrs. Brandt and Barbie were more interested in the play of iridescent colors over the tube banks. Mike Curtis, Steve Hollis, whose car had been returned by the police, Captain Galt, and Uncle Frank Chambers, a distinguished-looking man whom Doug resembled, were standing at the door chatting. They were interested, of course, but anything as complex as the electronic processes were far afield from their professions and interests. Rick and Scotty were at the far end of the vault, watching a series of 60 heavy glass tanks, which looked like aquarium tanks that goldfish fanciers sometimes used. The tanks were filling slowly with dark greenish liquid that seemed as thick as syrup. It doesn't look much like seawater to me, Scotty commented. It isn't anymore, Rick said. After the seawater passed through the fractionators, the pressure domes, and the sediment tanks, only the stuff like green molasses was left. 
Clipped to the side of each tank and projecting down to the liquid were pairs of gleaming metal rods called electrodes. Insulated wires led from them to the banks of electronic tubes. Doug and Tom entered and came to where the boys were watching. All okay, Doug said. Now let's see what we get. Better be something, Tom added, grinning, with all this audience. It will be, Rick said confidently. You weren't here when we ran the first tests. You'll see. No, while you were playing with all this lovely equipment, I was working hard arranging for buyers for our products. That's what I call real work, Tom returned. It's the kind of work I'd like to get, Scotty grinned. While you were eating at the best hotels and seeing the sights of New York and Philadelphia, we were up to our ears digging ditches, connecting pipes, building platforms, and sweating over hot soldering irons. I'll trade you any time. Doug joined Hartz and Brandt at the big control panel and Rick followed, leaving Tom and Scotty exchanging friendly insults by the tanks. This is where the equations come in, Doug said. He produced a notebook full of type computations. There's a control panel for each of those small tanks. I choose the equation corresponding to each tank that we want and set it up on the panels. Six tanks, six equations. We'll choose magnesium, aluminum, copper, zinc, silver, and gold. While Rick and his father watched, Doug turned dials and threw switches, setting up the equations on the board. Finally, he turned to the scientist. He was smiling, but Rick saw that he was nervous. This first full-scale operation meant a lot to Doug. Will you throw the electrode switches, sir? He invited. Why, thank you, Douglas, Hartson Brandt returned. I'd be honored. The scientist walked to a separate panel where six numbered knife-type switches corresponded to each of the tanks. One by one, he threw them. Hey, something's happening, Scotty called. The four men outside the door came running. Mrs. Brant and Barbie left the colorful tube banks and joined the group at the tanks. Soon, eleven heads were bent over the tanks, crowding for a look. Rick watched carefully. Bubbles were rising from one electrode in each tank, but that was only simple electrolysis as the current broke the liquid down into hydrogen and oxygen. The minerals would show up at the other electrodes. It was number three tank that showed the results first. It was hard to tell through the green liquid, but the electrodes seemed thicker. Number three is off, Doug called hoarsely. Rick jumped to the switch. The young engineer lifted the electrode out, held it over a glass dish, and scraped with a thin wooden blade. Wet, powdery metal fell in a little silver shower to the waiting glass. Doug looked at the interested faces around him. Pure aluminum, he said simply. One by one, the rest of the tanks built up their coatings of metal on the electrodes. Aluminum had come first, because there was a higher percentage of it in the residue liquid. Gold would come last, because there was less of it than the other metals. But at last, Doug called, Number six off! As he lifted the electrode, wet, yellow powder gleamed in the light. They were all laughing and talking at once and crowding around Doug with their congratulations. The flustered, happy young engineer laughingly pulled free. Now I propose that we eat! An outdoor table had been set up outside the Quonset hut, and the delicious seafood dinner that Captain Galt, as caterer, had prepared was waiting. Much later, Rick pushed his chair back. 
He was filled to bursting with clam chowder and broiled lobster. A moment later, Scotty, the last one to finish, pushed his chair back too and beamed at the assembled company. Tom Blakely requested, Now, Mike, how about that report you promised us after dinner? All right, Mike agreed. He rose and addressed them. Some of you know most of what I have to say. It's been in the papers, but I have something new to add from a talk I had with the district attorney. He expects Wessel to be sentenced for 20 years for attempted murder. Then he'll be tried on that old charge left over from the Spindrift Island moon rocket. He'll get about 10 more for that. Tony probably will get 20 years and Cooner 10. The Coast Guard found traces of the oyster poison on his boat, so that charge is waiting for Cooner too. The poison was copper sulfate, by the way. The private detective paused. I'm sorry to announce that Brink will only get five years in prison on the charge of harboring a criminal. However, the Department of Justice has taken an active interest. Their preliminary investigations into Brink's foreign tie-ups indicate that they'll find plenty more. It's even possible, one of their agents informed me by phone today, that they'll find enough evidence for a charge of treason. So I don't think we need to worry any more about our friend Brink. He looked at Rick. And Jenkins had his phone disconnected because his health forced him out of business. So that teaches all young detectives not to jump to conclusions. I want to thank you all for coming, Doug said quietly as Mike finished. It's an important day for Tom and me, and for Rick and Scotty, because we consider them partners too. Tom and I agreed that the boys should have a share in the plant, because without their help we might never have brought our enemies to justice. Rick and Scotty looked at each other speechless, then Rick jumped to his feet. Golly, Doug, we can't do that. I mean, we appreciate it, but we don't want any rewards. I agree with Rick, Hartson Brandt stated. Besides, if they accepted even a small share in your plant, it would obligate them in a sense. They would feel that they would have to keep their jobs for the rest of the summer. He paused and looked at Rick, eyes twinkling. And we have other plans for them. All the thoughts of the sea mine plant vanished. Rick ran around to where his father was sitting, Scotty right behind him. A new experiment, Dad? What is it? Is it a spindrift or somewhere else? Not so fast, his father laughed. We're not going to intrude on this celebration by talking about a new experiment. You'll just have to wait until we get home. Zircon and Weiss are arriving tomorrow. Later, it was with some reluctance that the boys resigned their jobs at the plant, but already they were looking forward to a new adventure and speculating on what it might be. Then a few days later, they walked with Hartz and Brandt into the big laboratory on Spindrift Island and were greeted by Professor Zircon and Professor Weiss. Zircon was perspiring over what looked like a huge brass ball. He looked up as they entered and growled, Well, it's about time. One more day of this loafing up in Connecticut, and we'd have left you home. But Rick and Scotty returned the big scientist's greeting absently, because their eyes were on an object in the center of the lab. It was set in a steel cradle, and at first glance it looked like a dirigible, although much smaller. It had square, heavy quartz windows and small propellers projected from the stern and from the sides. The nose was covered with strange devices. As they stared, open-mouthed, a door in the side opened and Julius Weiss crawled out. Don't stand there with your faces open, he snapped. Get into lab smocks. We have a lot to do and only a short time to do it in. 
Rick knew that the gruff greetings were the two scientists' way of letting the boys know it was nice to have them back. He grinned and turned to his father. Dad, please tell us. We'll pop if you don't. Like a couple of melons, Scotty added. I could feel my shirt buttons popping already. All right, Hartson Brandt laughed. Professor Gordon is waiting for us in Hawaii. He's chartered a suitable boat of some kind. I've also wired Chada to come home and join us. He'll be here tomorrow. Then we're all going to take a little trip. But where? Rick pleaded. And what for? Scotty asked. The trip is to the island of Huangara in the western Pacific, Hartson Brandt said. And that object into which Weiss just crawled like a hermit crab is the submobile, his own adaptation of the bathysphere. We must complete the work on it in two weeks so it can be shipped to Hawaii. Professor Gordon is working there with officials of the Bishop Museum, looking up all possible data on Alta Yuan. He smiled with the two eager faces. Alta Yuan is a sunken temple. We're going to explore it in an attempt to solve the mystery of the Pacific Polynesian migrations. A special assignment from the Pacific Ethnographic Society. Rick turned his glance on the intriguing thing in the scale cradle. But why do we need to explore a temple? This temple, Hartson Brandt said, is 100 fathoms down at the bottom of the sea. The end. This is your narrator, Jim Campanella. We hope that you've enjoyed this Uvula audio presentation of Sea Gold by Harold Goodwin. The Rick Brandt theme should be recognizable as the Johnny Quest theme, which was composed by Hoyt Curtin. Please feel free to write us and tell us what you think at uvulaaudio at uvulaaudio.com. You can also become a Facebook fan of Uvula Audio. Just do a search for Uvula Audio on Facebook, or you can do it from the main Uvula Audio webpage. As usual, check out our Cafe Press website for t-shirts, etc. For other Uvula Audio titles, please go to our website at www.uvulaaudio.com. We are listed on iTunes, and you can subscribe and download our podcasts for free from there. If you like our podcast, please feel free to tip us whatever amount you may like using the secure PayPal links at uvulaaudio.com. From all of us at Uvula Audio, we thank you. <laughs>